Everybody, I'm Brian Levine, and welcome to the Gould Standard, a podcast brought to you by the Glenn Gould Foundation. We bring you conversations with some of the most remarkable people from all across the world of the arts. If film, music, poetry, visual art, theater, novels, or dance are the form of truth-telling that you turn to for enlightenment and hope, I think you're in for a treat, because we're going to be speaking with one of the most powerful and courageous truth-tellers I know. But first, while you're stopping by under our glowing neon piano sign, please do take a moment to press like, share, and subscribe. And if you happen to be listening on Apple Podcasts, please kindly leave your reviews, pose your questions, and be part of our community of friends and supporters. And to get more illuminating words, images, and sounds, we'd love you to pay us a visit at our website, glengould.ca. And while you're stopping by there, you will not fail to notice a donate button. We are a registered Canadian charity, and we really do rely on the support of generous people like you. Please give generously to help us continue our work. Now, on to today's guest. I'll tell you a little story. Last October, the Glenn Gould Foundation convened an international jury of 13 major artists to choose the next laureate of the Glenn Gould Prize. These artists represented a wide range of creative disciplines from music to literature, performance art, and architecture and design, as well as diverse cultures and backgrounds. They were spread out in these COVID times from California to Chennai, India. Under the superb leadership of our chair, the great Laurie Anderson, they discussed, deliberated, and debated a dazzling array of artists who had been nominated for the prize by you, the arts-loving public. Many of these were big stars, so to speak, household names of fame and glamour, but one name kept coming to the fore in our discussions. While several of the jurors confessed that they had been unfamiliar with her and her work going in, they had read about her, taken the time to watch and listen to her work, and by the time they were done, they were convinced that she perfectly epitomized the ideals of the prize, a creator of a body of work that has enriched the human condition through the arts. And so, with both pride and humility, our jurors chose Alanis Obamsoen as the 13th Glenn Gould Prize laureate. Alanis has been called the mother of Indigenous cinema, and that is true. When she began with Canada's National Film Board in the 1960s, an Indigenous woman had never directed one of their films before. Over the next 50 years, she has directed more than 50 documentary films, fearlessly shedding light and honesty on the uncomfortable facts and the inglorious past and present of Canada in its treatment of the First Nations of this beautiful land. Of course, the truths she tells are equally applicable to the experience of Indigenous people the world over. Alanis, drawing on her rich Abenaki heritage, is a storyteller to her core, whether through her films, her beautiful etchings and prints, her music, and her work as a teacher. Jessie Wente, who now chairs the Canada Council for the Arts, has said, her whole career is an act of decolonization, an act of decolonization of our screens, of our institutions, but most importantly, a decolonization of our thoughts and how we think and see the world. And I think that has completely shaped and influenced how the country actually moved forward since then. I honestly can't imagine us getting a Truth and Reconciliation Commission without the work of Alanis Obamsuin. She's that foundational and important to Canadian culture. It has been such a privilege and joy for us all at the Glengold Foundation over these past months to spend time with Alanis, a woman who has lived the hardships and injustices suffered by her people 
explored that pain and projected it into our hearts and minds, and yet has maintained a great spirit of love, hopefulness, and openness to a new time of compassion, justice, and respect for human dignity that we all need to work together to bring about. Alanis, welcome and thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you. This sounds great. Well, you are great. I'm really <laughs> glad that you were able to take time to, to chat with us. I'd like to start by speaking a little bit with you about your early life, first because it really was remarkable, but also it seems to have influenced many aspects of, of your career and, and your work. Can you tell us a little bit about where you were born and how you grew up and the family that you spent time with and your community? I was born in Lebanon, New Hampshire, because my mother was working there at the time. And at the age of six months, she took me to Odana the community where she was born and where my father was born. I remained there. She went back to the States and I stayed there with her sister, my aunt, Jessie, and uh, my uncle and their children, and they took care of me. I was six months old at the time. I, apparently, I, I became very ill and I was in coma for a period of time and the doctor from next door had said that they should watch me, I should be dying in the next few hours that night. But an old aunt of my mother came in, and she wrapped me up in a blanket, and she took me to her place on the reserve. And she kept me for six months, and nobody knows what she did, but she saved my life, and I hear Wow. That's amazing. And so during that time... First of all, good fortune to you and to us that you survived. And I'm assuming that the healing methods that she used were traditional methods that, that saved your life. Nobody knows, but probably because she was known as a healer. And she had married my, my grandmother's brother, whose name was Pian Nagajoan. And the name of the, the woman, my mother's aunt, was Marie-Jeanne Parquet. But she was known to heal people around the village. And uh, she made that decision to take me away. It's incredible. Against the doctor's orders. So that, that took yes. some, some courage and determination. Um, so Odenak, when you were growing up with your, your aunt and your uncle, and, and they had six children of their own, right? Yes, but the three of them were already gone. They were adults. And there was three at home. The daughter was my age, and uh, a younger son, and an older son. Now, Odenak, which is one of the largest remaining Abenaki communities, it's on the, the south shore of the St. Lawrence, and it has a long history, but, but the Abenaki people were really spread throughout New England and parts of what we now think of as Eastern Canada before contact. Uh, what, what was the community like when you were growing up in it? Actually, it was very small. In terms of territory, uh, as declared as a reserve, it's about uh, one mile by four miles. In those days, there was just a, an earth road, and everything was happening on that road. To just give you some fun uh, example, my Aunt Jessie would say, lock the door, the anthropologist is coming. Because <laughs> the, the ethnologist and the anthropologist came time and time again, and uh, they asked you know, a million questions, and it was difficult mm -hmm. for some people to, to agree to it. But at the same time, there were people at home who were storytellers and would uh, spend time with uh, these people who were professional anthropologists. And I understand that one of the leading ways that people made a living, uh, aside from hunting and also guiding, which I'd like to talk about, but also basket making. And I, in one of your films, I've seen the most beautiful, extraordinary baskets that were made by the, uh, the people in Odenak. For many generations, our people have done that as a business and have built a village and have been able to survive. In the summer... The village would be empty because everybody was going to the States, to New England, where was our territory. And they would open like um, movable stores and they would make baskets. 
And some of them, like my grandparents had a house in a place called Atawa Beach. And there um, they would have a, a sign that says, we, the Mobanaki are here. They would make baskets on demand. So people could come and say, I want a basket to fit the corner. I want a rattle. I want it this color, so high. And they would do exactly what they asked for. Wow. It was so smart. The baskets would made, was made of ash and sweetgrass. And sometimes uh, the, the splint of the ash was dyed in different colors, beautiful colors. It was hard work. Like it would work long hours. And then at one point, the United States government wanted to start uh, taxing our people going back and forth and wanting them to pay taxes on whatever they sold. So people start stopping to go to the States. So they were working in Canada, and then the government of Canada took over this business. They had a little store on, on the reserve, and uh, they start paying people very poorly. And then uh, the value of the basket went down. It was just terrible. So then people stopped uh, teaching their children to make baskets because they felt they're going to be working all their lives for free for nothing. But uh, we still have some people who do make baskets. It's really extraordinary. I mean, if you look at it, and I, I saw in your film about how the the territory of Odenak, which had basically been carved out from one of the old uh, feudal seigneuries, then became smaller and smaller and smaller. You know, it's the same old story with indigenous people. We put you in this box and then we make the box smaller because we're taking more and more of the of the, the territory. That must have been very hard. Also in New England, the people in New England, I know, suffered greatly and have even had to struggle simply to be recognized as a as an indigenous people uh, up until very recently. There's still a lot of them that are not recognized. Quebec is different in Canada than all the other provinces. Because in Quebec, it was the French that came here first. And the French had a, a certain way of talking and so a certain way of being and believing too. They never made any treaties with our people in this province. They felt it was their country. That's why they call it New France. And that uh, they had conquered us and it was their country. So that alone was very uh, difficult, and we were under the law of the Napoleon Law. So this is the only place in Canada that there was the system of seigneurs. The king of France would give a title to an individual and would give him a land, which was on land, so much uh, acres of land, and he became like a seigneur of that territory and had a lot of people working for him, you can imagine what that was like. It's a very different system than all the rest of the country. And I, I also read, and I was actually horrified to read, that in Vermont, in the 1930s through 1950s, they actually had a statewide eugenics program. And one of the targets for that program for involuntary sterilization were Abenaki people. And they think that perhaps thousands of Abenaki over those 30 years or so were sterilized. It, it's horrifying. And many of them, they didn't even know it. You know, if they went to the hospital for anything, uh, they would sterilize them because they had them right there. Horrible. It's horrible. Um, well, uh, to, to something a little bit perhaps less horrible, what are your memories of Odenak growing up what were the people like, the kinds of environment? I understand that you, it was quite poor. You didn't have electricity. Um, but, you know, what are your memories of those, of those times and, and your family and friends? There was no electricity and there was no running water. We had a well. We had oil lamps. And at night, uh, the atmosphere was like I sat in the kitchen and adults told stories. In our case, in Odanak, a lot of the men that, had gone to be guides in the fall, uh, had lots of stories about animals, behavior, people they were gui guiding, what they were like. And so we, if you had uh, four or five children listening to this, you had four or five different stories because we had no images. It was just the sound, the voice of people. And you imagine in your head, 
you make images. So it's different. It's like, I think this is the reason why I make films the way I do, because I always do just sound first. I love to hear. Mm-hmm. It, and for me, listening is the most, it's a word. It's the most important thing. Right. And coming back to that time, if you had five kids listening to a story and uh, you hear it, but you got no image, so you, you imagine. So yeah, five different films right there because mm-hmm. each child imagines something totally different than the other. So I never forgot that. And I, for me, it's very sacred. I love to listen, especially when I'm working with older people to hear what it was like. And to imagine uh, that they have survived and it's their old country and it was so unfriendly for a long time. And it's so, so rich in the way that people tell their story and how, how they did it, how they cultivate the land, how they cultivate their own mind to have a, a good life with what's possible and taking from the heart and the mind and creating a special world. And in addition to stories, was um, music and singing songs of your people part of your memories as well? Lots of singing and lots of dancing and uh, drumming that was always very close to the people. And uh, making songs about the everyday life. You mentioned guiding, and I, I understand that being guides for wealthy people who came to Quebec because they had uh, hunting lodges was also one of the ways that people made a living. Can you tell us a bit about about what that was like? Yeah, it was very different at that time. In this province, there were lakes were privately owned very often. For instance, there was a lake here in the north. There was a lake called Lac La Fèche. This was privately owned. It means that they had members. In our case, I think about 35 members were from the States and 35 from Canada. And obviously all these people who belonged there as a member were rich people, people who could afford it. And uh, they would arrive there in helicopters or small planes and uh, they would hire a lot of abenakis to go guiding for hunting and fishing. A guide's work was not only to just take them uh, to find the animals, but also uh, to put up the tent, to serve these, these people or this family, everything, making food. And there's lots of stories that we told to us of happenings in those small towns. And then when the, the separatist government came into power in Quebec, they banished that, finished, there's no more private lake. It was for everybody. And uh, so the, the the whole thing changed. You had members of your family. Uh, for example, you had a, an uncle, Theo, uh, Theophil Anadis, right, who was, was a guide? He was a guide. He was my mother's cousin. He taught me a lot of songs and told me a lot of stories. And he was an incredible storyteller and had a lot of knowledge about everything concerning the Wambanaki people. I mean, he is someone that um, a lot of historians turn to back in that period to, to document yes. the history of your people. Can you remember um, any stories, for example, one, again, getting back to things that, that aren't so pleasant about Major Rogers raid? Was that one of the stories he would tell you? Uh, not, not at that time. I learned about Rogers raid a little bit later on, but he knew all, all that story. I wrote a story about Rogers coming to Odana. It's in French. Because Major Roger wrote about it himself and said that he had killed about 200 people. But some people were arguing in terms of the number and arguing in terms of the story. Because when he came in the middle of the night to burn the village and shoot people and uh, destroy the village completely, he had guides that took him to Udanak. And one of them, who was an indigenous person, came in the dark, it was at night. And that particular night, the people were celebrating and they were in a in kind of a longhouse dancing and singing. And uh, sometimes some of them would come out just to cool because it was so hot in there. 
And this young woman was outside and somebody whispered to her and said, don't be afraid, I've come to warn you. This is our story. And uh, he told her that someone during the night was going to come and burn their village down and kill everybody. And she should go and warn the old people, the man, to, to help themselves. And then he took off. So she ran inside this dancing place, told people, but a lot of people didn't think that it was true. But some of them were worried and they went to hide with their fan in a place in Odana. So all those people who went to hide were survivors. And then there were others that did not get killed but were taken as prisoners with Major Rajan. And then he had so many problems when he was traveling back to Vermont because our people, and many of them had gone to Quebec City to fight on the side of Mokan, which was the French leader. Wolf was the one for the English, and there was a big battle on the plains of Abraham, 1759. The English won. So it changes how Quebec would be ruled after. I never found out if it was a coincidence or if it was planned that way, but not many days after the battle, that's when Major Roger came with his men to uh, destroy the village. I still don't know. I, I've done some research on that. That I think might have been a coincidence that these dates were chosen. But it's obviously the kind of traumatic event. It was only by the good luck of having that warning that some of the people were able to survive that Odenak continued as a community. And the story is kept alive among the people. So your childhood took a bit of a dramatic change when you were, I think, was it seven years old that you went to live in Trois-Rivières? I'm not sure if it's seven or eight or six. It's hard to tell for me because that's when I left Odanat to go and live somewhere else. But every summer I all spent on Odanat after all the vacation time oh. and uh, Christmas time. I would be in Odanat. I have a hard time to know exactly when I had moved out to live someplace else. That's when I found out that I was poor. And were reminded the that there were differences in Quebec society and in Canadian society between Indigenous people and the white people. You've described that as a very hard time for you. You were in a class. There were nuns teaching you. It must have been very difficult. You were the only Indigenous child, right? Yes, and uh, especially when she would open the, the book of the history of Canada, I knew I was going to get beat up that day. Because in, that, in those books that's, that were written by the church, actually, uh, were teaching how the savages were. We were ignorant. We didn't have religion. We were scalping the poor whites that came here. And, you know, all this kind of... Um, stories in those books, so you can imagine the way they looked at me. As I grew a little bit older, I began to realize there was something really wrong, very wrong, that were with the license teaching children to hate. And I thought, what could I do? The children have to hear another story. That's how I started getting very involved. Eventually, I did a lot of tutoring, a lot of schools in the country. That's the best decision I made in my life. For the children to hear something else than what they were reading was very important. Absolutely. But it, it must also have been very lonely for you. I mean, first of all, being bullied and beaten up. I mean, that, this happened more than once. It must have, must have happened quite a few times. Yeah. But at, at some point you decided that you weren't going to take it anymore, right? Yeah. It's a difficult time to talk about. Well, I don't, I don't want to linger on it, but it seems as though you made a decision that this had to stop and, and you put your foot down and, and you stopped it, being beaten up. Yes. I know the scenario. I know I was <laughs> going to do that. I'm glad you did. So you, you got through school and you got through your teen years and obviously there are always challenges to be a teenager and, you know, growing up and suddenly boys who were behaving one way behaved quite a different way. And that must have been 
confusing and difficult as well. Today, I'm sure of it. But in those days, I was, it was like a big puzzle. I realized how education is important for all people, but also very dangerous. If you're going to school and you're learning to hate and you're learning to be uh, controlling other people, it's very bad. And when you're very young, what do you know? If this is what they're teaching you, you grow up hating some people, certain race, uh, with all kinds of ideas that, that you hear at, at that time. And this is, that's my very simple way of understanding what was going on at that time. This is how I, I made big move. <laughs> but also, before you were, you were finished your teens, you had begun modeling. And that must have been a, a big change. Suddenly, you're appearing in fancy clothes and, you know, being photographed and being treated essentially like the center of attention instead of the girl hiding at the back of the class. Was that a, a positive experience for you? It was incredible. I was 16 when I was first asked to model in a fashion show. High fashion show. There, there was this one woman who had a, a old couture place where she was designing clothes and she was brilliant. For some reason, she, uh, she felt that she model. wasn't my idea. She would give me clothes at, at the time, a dress that could sell for $300 for a dress. It's like, like 3000 today. Mm -hmm. It was so beautiful. I could never buy a dress like that. But mm -hmm. she would give me one, and just because I was wearing it, she said that people wanted it or want to, went to her. Her name was Pauline Duval, and she was brilliant. was really high-class stuff. And then there was another one whose name was Clarette, and she had a store, and she used to sell uh, material, and she started doing fashion. It was a totally different uh, grade of clothes, but it was wonderful. So I was modeling for the two, and uh, I learned. Pauline used to take me to Montreal with her to go when she was going to this uh, store that don't exist, not store, that like factory. It was called uh, France Couture. All material came from France. And they were the top-notch uh, material. And that's where I learned the different kinds of material. I learned so many things with you about how you dress. What's, uh, why is this material better than the other? What's the name of it? Yeah, some wrinkles, some don't. And you know, all that stuff I learned when I was uh, 16. Wow. And I was fascinated by it. I just loved it. Yeah. So it was a good experience, but it also led to you spending some time in the United States. Uh, I understand that uh, you ended up um, moving for a while to model in Florida. I was modeling bathing suits. <laughs> and uh, I couldn't speak English at all. And I realized that this was dangerous. So I got a job taking care of children. And so I had a, a, a house that where I was staying at. had to mind the children every night because they went out a lot. And and sleep there. So I, I felt protected. And they would lend me a car to go and model uh, downtown. These lines, uh, I remember one line was Catalina Bellingson. I would model all day, then go back in the car that they had lent me, and then stay with the children. And that's when I learned English mm. with the children. I picked the worst thing in the world. I was reading the Indian Act. Huh. Previously to that, I used to read it in French. So I could fight in French, but I couldn't fight in English. So I had the Indian act, English and French. And it was awful because you read a paragraph and then it would say, oh, you go to another, another page, another paragraph, because there's a change here. Oh, uh, but uh, that's how I learned English with the Indian, the Indian act and the children. You know, good training. You could probably write contracts because it's written in that kind of language. <laughs> So, oh my God. Uh, but that's the, that's really fascinating, and, and one thing that strikes me about that this is, um, I'm guessing fifty two or fifty three, something like that, maybe. But there are you, and it's Florida, so you're really in the middle of the Jim Crow South, where there's this horrendous oppression of black people, and you're not exactly fair skinned and blue eyed and blonde. It's really Not interesting. Exactly, no, no, no. But <laughs> is, is, isn't it interesting that you were presented 
in a fashion beauty context at a time where dark-skinned people were so, so completely discriminated against. Very, very hard to understand. Yeah. But anyway, you came back to Canada and this time you, you came to Montreal, right? I didn't come directly here. I went back to Three Rivers and then I moved here. And it was, it was a very special time in uh, the history of Quebec in Montreal. You'd grown up under the government of Premier Maurice Duplessis, which was definitely a very, very conservative time. But everything was opening up in the 1950s and Montreal became a really exciting place for culture, for the arts, for intellectual life uh, with people like, well, actually two of your fellow Gould Prize laureates, Oscar Peterson and Leonard Cohen, were, you know, starting their careers then, but lots of other people too, Irving Leighton and Riopel, and, and you were in the middle of that. And you were actually moving in a circle of artists and intellectuals too at that time. Yes, I was. And I must say that the language was very new to me in terms of, uh, I had never been surrounded by people who keep giving you compliments. I was never used to that. Things like, I won't repeat it, it's embarrassing, but you're always making um, compliments on what you look like and all sorts of things. So uh, I felt very uh, loved in a lot of ways. I don't mean uh, lovers and things like that, like that. Mm-hmm. I mean, by a lot of wonderful people. Mainly yeah. artists. And was it around this time that you also started singing in their circle and finding that part of your voice again? That's before. I was singing only like in schools, you know, places like that, before that, for teaching and showing games to children, playing with children. Sometimes I'd have a large group, like several classes, but sometimes it was one class, and I would do one class at a time. And then recreation time, I would run into the field with uh, the children and show them Indian games. I don't regret one minute of it. It was uh, really special for me. And mm-hmm. I did hundreds of schools, including at the time in the 60s, residential schools. I did quite a few residential schools at that time. It must have been very striking that knowing you and the way you present yourself and represent the culture, you are presenting such a different image of an indigenous woman compared to what you had been exposed to in those textbooks. A proud person with a rich culture, with stories, and also you'd come out of out of fashion morning, so presented very attractively and so on. This must have felt like you were teaching a lesson to them just by the way you presented yourself in, in the class? I don't think I was thinking of myself like that. My main um, reason was to show how beautiful our people are, how cultivated they are in a different way, and what mm-hmm. the values are. It was to show the best side of our people, which is there and still there today. And those were mm-hmm. the reasons I didn't want uh, this thing to continue about the the battles and the scalping and uh, what savages we were. We were ignorant. We didn't have religion. And, you know, all that stuff, which is vicious and untrue. Those, that was the reason. But you defied the stereotypes that they were getting in those books by basically showing the the richness of the culture and all the things that they read about were clearly not true based on what you showed them. And, uh, you know, this is actually kind of ironic because all during this period, Indigenous people in Canada, if I'm not mistaken, didn't yet have the right to vote. It started in 1960. But there's a, another story that I learned lately from uh, Senator St. Clair, who tells a story in a little film that I just finished. He, he taught me something, uh, the way for us to become citizens of Canada only happened in 1960. So when you think of it, we, they still have all the residential schools, all the same system. So 1960, from what I learned, there were big changes all over the world for a lot of people, including Canada, including Indigenous people. And before previously, this 1960, we weren't allowed, many things were against the law. 
And for instance, to have celebration, to have ceremonies, to have powwows, we couldn't do that. You should have seen us. We were like children of 1960s, just doing it everywhere. So mm. you could travel all summer long and go to a power every week. Somewhere there was one. And it was really quite special. But Senator Sinclair really teaches us in this film that I just finished, which is called Honor to Senator Sinclair, to Senator Mary Sinclair. And he tells a story that is so important that he says uh, in 1885, Sir MacDonald was the Prime Minister of Canada and also the Minister of Indian Affairs. He had these two worlds. He decided, he said, well, if we want uh, these uh, Indian people to, to be civilized, we should give them the right to vote. So they gave the right to vote if you were over 18 and if you were a man, because women were more allowed to vote, and if you owned property. And this went on, and it didn't take long for our people to outvote some minister that they didn't like. Sir MacDonald was furious. So he made a new rule in the Indian Act that I've been studying all my life. Paragraph tells you what the rule is, what the law is, if there's a change, you go to this place to find a change. So he had um, a paragraph that said a person, the word person, is anybody in the world except Indians. Ah. So if you were not a person, you couldn't vote. This is how he took away the right to vote at that time in 1891. And then all this time after, not allowed to vote. Until 1960, what I was talking about. Well, it, yeah. it, it seems that um, it's almost like an echo from the past because we see in certain parts of the world, politicians or political parties that don't like the way some of the people vote, try to keep them from being able to vote. That's, you know, it's, a, it's an old story that we should, we should put an end to once and for all. Yeah, yeah. So you were singing in schools and um, I assume that you would maybe sing at parties and in small gatherings, but eventually you end up on a stage in New York at, at Town Hall in 1960. Yeah. By the way, yeah. that's the place where, where Glenn Gould made his concert debut in the States uh, five years earlier. Really? Yeah, absolutely. In and New by, York. Yeah. yeah, in New York at, at Town Hall. And he was also born the same year as you, so you have those things in common. But how did that come about? Because it didn't sound like you were, you know, singing with the idea of having a concert career, um, but suddenly you're on a yeah. stage in New York. I just about died. <laughs> uh, I, that's because I used to sing at parties. And uh, this man who was working for Folkways was there and preparing a Canadian concert in New York. And uh, there were seven or eight of us. And asked me, at first I said, oh, no. After a period of time, so oh, you might enjoy it, and it's important. So I said yes. After I said yes, I was sorry. I said yes. So, <laughs> anyway, I end up in New York, and there was an entertainer man that I just love, and his name was Tijan Carignan, and he was very famous as a violin. He even went to play for the Queen. And he, he traveled with me and my mother. I, I took my mother. By the time we got on the stage... This, my mother told me, I was so scared, like, a, you know, the, the place was packed, and you don't see people. The light is just where you are. You don't see the people. And my mother said, me, I don't remember that, but she said I was pulling on my, my hand like this, <laughs> not saying a word. And a woman who was sitting next to my mother, who was the wife of uh, this guy, uh, who had asked me to go and sing. She says, I thought your mother was going to faint. Because, you know, at a stage like that, a minute is like an hour. It is terrible. And yeah. standing there, so afraid. I said, well, I wish I could just drop dead. I wouldn't have to sing. That's what I was thinking. <laughs> Finally, you know, there's no sound at all. And I just said, I'm having a hard time. Sick, still, no sound at all. <laughs> then I started to sing. And then I guess it was okay, you know. But my God, I said, never yeah. again. I'm going on the stage. Oh, it was <laughs> just so scary. Well, obviously they, they liked you enough that 
you got invited to do a lot more performing and you ended up singing across the country. You mentioned in schools and in indigenous communities and also in prisons and at folk festivals. Yeah. You want to hear a funny story? I always want to hear a funny the story. Funniest. One time, you know, somebody said to me, oh, I think it was 1968. He said, uh, did you know that in prison, the, the majority of prisoners are, they didn't say indigenous in those days, they said right. are Indian. So I said, oh, yeah. I didn't know that. I said, oh, yeah, it's, it's a known fact. It's everywhere. I said, well, it means my family's in jail. I'm going to go and see them. <laughs> so I, I met uh, this man who um, had been in jail but was a professional doctor. I forget the what. He wanted to help prisoners. And I don't know how come somebody introduced me to him. And I told him that I want to go and sing in jail. He said, I'll fix it for you. And he arranged for me to go and sing in several prisons. But there's one of them, a, a, a maximum um, prison. It's very severe. And uh, so it was arranged that I would go and sing there. And they said, this is the toughest one. Uh, he said, people who are come to this jail, often it's because they come from another province, from another prison. They're called, I don't know what to say the name, people who tell another prison, prisoners. Right. And so they get into fights and then they, but they move from one place to the next and they end up here in Quebec in this prison. And they're telling me how awful it is. And, you know, and don't ask me, I just wasn't afraid. But I was hearing all this and, and they said, oh, you know, it's very dangerous and uh, all this stuff. So they said, there's 500 prisoners here. So my main concern was, I was worried that I might look sexy. So I put on a nun's apron. It's like mm -hmm. a dress made of cotton and it's little striped with big puff sleeves. It's what they were wear for cleaning the floor and stuff like that. And it's loose. It's so sure. And uh tempt anybody. So I arrived there. I forget the time. Let's say I was, I was allowed to stay an hour or two. Let's say two o'clock, supposed mm -hmm. to start. So I come at one thirty. I don't know if this is the right time. I'm just using any time. Right. And there were some guards there and, and they said, oh, Madame Oboxawin, uh, I don't know if you're going to have anybody to come and see you because, you know, they're all telling each other nobody's ever come there to entertain before and uh, so I said, that's okay. If they, I, I'm allowed to stay for this period, I'll stay. If nobody comes, there's no big deal. I'll just go back home. And let's say uh, it's one thirty. Uh, nobody. 20 to 2, nobody. And he can keep saying, he said, oh, I hope you don't feel fast. I said, no, I don't care. I just came and it's all right, you know. So let's say maybe a quarter to two. 500 guys gets in the place. <laughs> and I think the floor must have been cement, you know, because they had these chairs which made of iron and it's very noisy when you move them. Yeah. And the noise was terrible and they, and they all sit there. So now I'm taken to the front. And at the front, you have all these guys sitting there. It's a flat floor. There's a table. And at the table, there's a microphone on a stand here. And the other side of the table, I'm supposed to sing from here. I said, are you crazy? I don't see anybody. This is, so I take a chair. Uh -huh. I put it on the table, one of those chairs. I get another chair. I jump on that chair and then on the table and on the chair. Now I'm sitting on the chair, on the table, so I can see everybody. So you can imagine what I must have looked like in my <laughs> nun's dress and my drum. And so I'm sitting there. And I start talking to the prisoners, and then uh, I, I start singing a song with my drum. And there was two guys at the front, two Quebecers on the front row. They start laughing at me. They were laughing from the heart. You know, so funny, like it, their shoulders was going like this, they're killing themselves mm -hmm. laughing. And me, I'm having a hard time to finish my song because I keep looking at them. <laughs> so finally, finally, I finished my song. And I said, if you think that this is funny, you're going to take my place. Come and uh -huh. sing, and I'll go and sit at a new place. We'll see how funny it is. And then, with no, with no word, I could feel in the room. Then I got scared. I said, they're going to get beat up. Because I said, if you think it's funny, these two guys are laughing at me. 
Right. And then I said, no, no, I take care of myself. I didn't want anybody to be against her. So finally, yeah. I said, I'll sing again. We'll see, uh, sing another song. And they were laughing, but not so much. And then I start teaching them words in my language and we're singing. The whole place is singing with me. And finally, one of the guards comes and he says, okay, you guys, you got to go back to yourself. And she has to leave. And uh, not one guy went out without coming to touch me, my hand, or kiss me on the cheek and saying thank you, including these two guys who were laughing so much. And he said, sorry. I said, look, I think and I must have looked so funny. I probably would have done the same if I had been sitting <laughs> at your place, looking at me, looking like this. So I never forgot that that uh, experience. Oh my God, it was unbelievable. It's great, <laughs> and and of course yeah. you were you were ahead of the curve with uh, people later like Johnny Cash performing in Folsom Prison, and you were really leading the way for them. I would never compare myself with them, but uh, Johnny Cash. Oh my God, yeah, he would have killed himself laughing, not watching me. <laughs> 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 I'm sure. Yeah. So this is now the 1960s. It's, of course, the, the height of the folk song movement. There's the protest movement. There's so many areas of social awareness throughout North America that are being elevated through traditional music and new folk songs. And you were part of that. You were at the Mariposa Festival during its heyday, and you could have continued building that presence in music. but Suddenly, in the 1960s, your career took a very different turn with your introduction to the National Film Board. And can you tell us a little bit about how that came about? You're on one path, and the next moment, you're on a very different path. I forget why or how, but I was invited to go to the film board to do, like, a, a talk. And they had me, in those days, they had small theaters that people looked at the stock shot arriving and... It was very small. Perhaps it could, you could have 30 people in there, nothing more than that. And he sat me there and he said, tell us a story like you do in the classroom. Mm -hmm. So I wasn't, uh, it was easy for me to do, which I did. They were all producers and directors there. And it was nice. It started like that. And then uh, I was asked to be um, a consultant on film that they were doing out west. And I said, yes. Of course, I didn't know what, what I was getting into. And I immediately saw that this was wrong because I realized they were using me to come on the reserve and have access in film. And as I started to be afraid, I thought, oh my God, if they don't like the film, they'll say it's Alanis's fault. She brought them here. I saw that right. immediately. And I was right. And I said to the people at the board, don't you ever, ever ask me to be a consultant like that on anything. I'm not interested. I don't want to be part of it. There was a studio called Multimedia at the time, and everything they did in there was for the classroom. So when I learned that, I was very excited. And what they were doing there, all the programs were done what they call film strips, which is like a strip of a 35-millimeter celluloid. You pick up your story with images like it could be photographs or or slides, and uh, you number them, and you know you, you know what your story is going to be. So, and then you take it to the animation camera, and then you shoot it in one strip. And this is why it was called film strip, right? But it had no sound. So they had these small projectors in each classroom that this strip could go to. Then, in another part of the room, they had a long playing record, and you had a long playing record where the sound was. And when this, the, the, let's say the son says, there were 12 chiefs here. So the teacher would tell the child who's sitting next to the projector, move the projector so that she would move the projector, each phrase by hand. And it took me a long time to do the first educational kit. By the time I was finished, this had, had progressed a little bit. So by the time I got to the classroom, the same system, the, the same projector and the record player wiki, but it had uh, what's more advanced, would say. There were 12 chiefs here, boing, and the boing <laughs> would make the frame change. And, and so you heard the boing after each phrase, and I thought, oh, my God. When I go back to the reserve and showing this to people, look at all that 
point, you know. But it turned out to be fantastic <laughs> because it was in all the classroom and I had more fun with that and it was just fantastic. And mm-hmm. that was the first time we had a professional product that was in the classroom, part of the educational system, very different than what they were used to here. And that's how I started. And I would always work in three languages, language of the people. And in the, in the case of, of Manuan, it was at Tigame or Cree. And, uh, you know, it would take a long time. And also I was learning at the same time. I couldn't do these things overnight, but they were fantastic. Back in the classroom, it was really something. And, and it's, it's, I think, very hard for people today to remember what a powerful relationship the NFB had with the school systems all across this country. I remember very well the presentation of film strips with the film strip projector with a manual crank to advance the frames mm-hmm. forward. Mm-hmm. And every two weeks or a month, the, the teacher would roll in from an AV department, which was basically a closet with a couple of 16-millimeter projectors, yeah. Bell and Howell projectors, and we'd watch an NFB film. Yeah. So it was it was really like yeah. an automatic audience all across the country. Yeah, I enjoyed every bit of it. How, how many so of those wonderful. did you do? How many of those kits did you make? I made two kits. Took me forever, of course, in three languages. And in the kit, you have the films. In one, there was seven films, seven film strips, which means seven sound uh, recorded on a long playing record. And we covered always first the history of the community. And that would take a certain time. And then things that they were more interested in, whatever they wanted to do. For instance, when I did one in, uh, with the Lillewat people in Mount Curry, BC, we did one, part one and part two, puberty. It's beautiful. The person who did the soundtrack, her name was Marie Leo. She was the last woman there to have gone through a traditional training at puberty time. And she told a whole story from the beginning to the end of what happens and how you get your training and who's involved. And it was very interesting. So I said to Marie, you're going to have to draw about this because I'll never find those images that you're talking about. She says, I can't draw. I said, of course you can't draw. And I thought she came to stay here. And actually, we did a coloring book of this, of these images. It looks like a child's drawing as she described everything from the first time she menstruated and what it did and all the training. And it's just so beautiful. Is there a place we can see the kits now? You can see them on nfb.ca. You mention my name, but you get a good mm-hmm. seat to mention my name. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, you just, because the film board later on, years after, produced a DVD of the all what was in the, the education kits as films. So you can actually look at them now like a film. Oh, and wow. uh, it's to just say the name uh, Lilouat or Manuan, which is the two communities I went to. And in, in the box of the of this, there was seven or six films. The long playing record, which had all the sound. Sometimes there was two long playing record. And then there were toys made by the children in the wow. kit. There were maps, there were old photographs that I would pick in the archives and with the information in the back in three language, games of dolls, some of them, uh, one in, in Little what the, the, it was made by the children themselves and uh, a, a miniature pair of snowshoes, also done by the children. And from Little what also a rug on the floor made out of, uh, from a tree. But all kinds of things that children could touch and pass it around and discuss. That was a plus in the, in the educational kit. Wow. And uh, in this case of Little Web, there was a coloring book and many things that, uh, for a teacher, it was a lot of tools and especially on one nation to talk about them and their games and gambling games and, uh, how they made canoes, how they, uh, all the, what, has to do with their culture and a live culture, the language. So it was fascinating you know, to to work on that. 
Well, that's, that's amazing. And, and obviously a pretty bold innovation that really, I think, very likely for the first time in Canada, started presenting the stories of the people from the perspective of themselves, you know, from you as a, as a storyteller, bringing their stories to life in the classroom. Such a wonderful experience. That brings us to the end of part one of our conversation with the 13th laureate of the Glenn Gould Prize, Alanis Obamsuan. And I really found it inspiring to hear of her resilience and the courage that she has shown throughout her early life, the experiences that formed her as a person and an artist, and uh, that really prepared her to be the remarkable witness and example that she's been to generations of Indigenous people across Canada. Olivia, what did you take from the conversation? Well, I think resilient is absolutely the right word. It's it's pretty remarkable to hear the first-hand account of some of these really heartbreaking stories and tragedies, which unfortunately and terribly get glossed over in much of Canadian history. So Alanis, her work, her storytelling, you know, these are necessary conversations to have. And I feel very privileged to be able to work with Alanis one-on-one and with you, Brian. And friends, we are so excited to share with you information about the events that we have coming up as uh, Alanis Obamswin receives her $100,000 Glenn Gould Prize. We will be unveiling the premiere of Seeds, the Art of Alanis Obamswin a spectacular sound and light show, which will be presented from October 4th to 18th on the massive east face of the Royal Ontario Museum. No admission, just come after dark and you'll be able to see it. It's a brilliant presentation of Alanis's visual art brought to life with the visionary animations of Métis artist Terrell Calder. Of course, we will be presenting the Glengold Protégé Prize to Victoria Henderson Gardner and in addition, we have other events coming up. The trailer for Seeds will be presented at this year's Toronto International Film Festival. So you'll be able to find out more about this innovative program on the evening that they are paying tribute to Alanis, September 14th. And Victoria, what more do we have coming up? Well, we are working on something very exciting in partnership with Percival Press and one of our directors on our board, Vigo Mortensen. Uh, we are producing a beautiful hardcover art book called Dream Visions, and it is celebrating the visual art of Alanis. And we have many friends and supporters involved in this book writing appreciations, including Laurie Anderson and Richard Reed Perry, who were on the Glengold Prize jury, who chose Alanis as the 13th laureate as well as a preface from Buffy St. Marie, a long 6,000-word interview with Alanis. It's, it's really a beautiful piece of work. So you will hear more details very soon about where and when that is available, but it will be available widely, so please stay tuned. And thank you again, friends, for helping us celebrate this extraordinary artist, and we hope you'll join us for part two of our conversation with the amazing Alanis Obamsuin. And before we go, Olivia, do you have some additional information to share with our friends? Oh, yes. You can hear about all of these updates on our social media at the Glenn Gould Foundation. And of course, on our website, glenngould.ca. 
Uh, we are a registered Canadian charity, and if you are interested in this work and you care to support it, please consider donating. We really appreciate every little bit. Thank you again, and uh, we hope to hear from you soon. Thanks, folks. Stay tuned. We oui.